Oh, they'll win. Um, they usually do. Uh, well, we're going through a wee bit of a mini slump at the minute, so... What a terrible slump. Uh, yeah, can we start there? Because I'm intrigued by the Rangers experiment. Obviously, they're only 10 years old, this club. So they're doing really well, considering <laughs> they've just come into existence. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not rising to debate there, mate. That's this is okay. 150, this is the 150th year anniversary of, of the club. Of course. And I've got in trouble with Celtic fans in the past by saying, ah, Celtic, not a big club. And uh, <laughs> the chat went, come on, Lisbon Lions, get with it. Because of the decline of Scottish football and Scottish football clubs now, everybody's having to reach back to the 60s or the 70s, you know, to demonstrate how great the club was. Uh, that, that in itself is a bit embarrassing. It is. Well, especially because it's all, 1978 is the point that I think football changed. I really think when the FA woke up to the fact that non-British Isles-based players could actually come over and play, then came the Argentinians, yeah. then came the Dutchmen, <coughs> then came everyone else, even a Brazilian at uh, Newcastle. Yeah. Yeah. But before that, the amount of Scots playing in the English game, dating all the way back to the 19th century, but especially in the 70s, I just read a book... Uh, Neil Doherty wrote a book all about Scotland in 1998 and he started by saying Scotland reached the group stages of six World Cups and in the 70s this team of Bremner and Dalglish and Souness. When you were young, uh, to quote a Delamitri song title, uh, they're an incredible team. They still have a good team now, it's just everyone else has superseded them slash you. I think the nature of the game changed though. And you're probably right, around about that time, 78, 79, attitudes to training and, you know, fitness and the way you played and stuff, you know, I think probably took a wee bit of time, but, you know, the the, the UK game and, and you know, to, to be more specific, the Scottish game didn't really adapt. It didn't change at the same time or at the same, at the same pace. You know, working your way through the 80s and into the 90s and, and after after that, it's just, it's just about money. And it's as much about going behind the scenes in the boardroom. It is incredible how yeah. Scottish fans seem to be like Spanish football fans. They ask, they know where the money's coming from. They know the players are there, unfortunately, to move on to bigger and better things because Celtic is not the destination. Went to Rugby Park about two years ago. My brother was celebrating his 30th. My mum's partner had met a friend who said, oh yeah, you can come to Kilmarnock whenever you happen to be up there. Mum's partner said, well, we're up here now. It was the most dour game. This was when Kilmarnock uh, were being managed by Alessio and they wanted to pass the ball into the net from a yard. They scored their winner 1-0 from a corner. It was cold. The wine gums were the best part of the game. But just the, the nature of Scottish top-level football. Do you, do, do you know where I was? Yes, I do. All oh, right, I wasn't sure if you did. Um, I'm just probably about less, less than a mile from Rugby Park. Oh. Um, my son used to work for the club at the time when Alessio was there, actually, oh, um, right. on the co- on the coaching staff. But you know, I think I think the difference that a team like Kilmarnock would have would have gone through under a manager like Steve Clark. Anybody coming after that was was always going to suffer. It's a kind of up and down situation in in Scotland. Probably if you if you're not Rangers and Celtic, and it's really to do with the, the level of investment. You know, it's not to do with the talent or or mm-hmm. the, the kind of regional academies and anything like that. They're they're all actually pretty strong. Um, it's just that the players don't have the. The clubs don't have the financial infrastructure to hold on to the players for any length of time. As a result of that, they fall into the category, I think, of taking 
available uh, players on agent recommendations from overseas that, to be honest, aren't as good as aren't as good as the players that are in this country. But there's, there's still that philosophy that the game up here is agent driven. Players move mm-hmm. on so regularly; it's unbelievable, and it's all agent movement. You know. It's not doing the game any any good up here, I don't think. It was almost incredible to see Scott Brown leaving Celtic to go to Aberdeen. He's probably the, the longest-serving Scottish player of any calibre. Yeah. With, with all your references to the impoverishment of Scottish football, it does make me think a little of uh, Borshaw Bridge Football Club. But not quite there. There's this... We're here to discuss David F. Ross. Uh, as my friend David K. Barnes would say, the K stands for my middle name. So I'm not going to ask what the F stands for. Well, um, do you know the thing? I'll tell you, I'll tell you very briefly the reason why it's there. Um, it's not invented. It is my middle name, actually. But um, in, in other parts of life, I'm an architect. And I reasonably, I suppose in that context, reasonably well-known, given that Scotland um, is quite a small country in that, in, in that front. When the book... When the opportunity to be published and, and all of that started, I I thought I'll use my middle initial simply to differentiate the writer from the architect, you know. And the truth of it is, everybody knows. So I now don't know why I did that, you know. <laughs> um, the only the only re- I suppose the only reason I'm glad I did uh, still is there's a, a sports writer from who lives in Kilmarnock who's called David Ross. Um, and he writes, um, he he writes about football and about sport, um, and he does it really well. Um, and I suppose from a, if if it was equity, that would be the reason why Indeed. I'd I like stick with a middle initial. So there's a wee bit of differentiation there, but well, that's the truth of it. To be honest, thank you. Uh, as it is, uh, that reminds me of what Eric Samuelson said because I called Wimbledon Athletic Football Club Wimbledon. He said, no, 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 the AFC is just there so that we're at the top alphabetically. They've stopped clubs um, using AFC. So it, it's completely redundant in that in the yeah. name of that um, club. So, <laughs> David, you might as well call yourself David AFC Ross. Well, I used to, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll refrain from swearing, which is quite difficult for me, but um, I used to tell people that the, the, name, the name stood for uh, an expletive in the middle. David um, Effing Ross. From the uh, it's from the time when I was a wrestler, professional wrestler. Very good. Um, oh, um, I don't think anybody believed that right enough, but it was a good enough story at the time. I think the wrestling art- architect sounds like a very good heel or hero. <laughs> That's a superhero uh, movie waiting for waiting to be made by Marvel, I think. Hey, in Edinburgh, they shot some of that film on the mile. What was it, The Avengers? One of The Avengers was shot on the mile? Was, I remember uh, being up there. Was, there's been loads of things in Glasgow lately. Raiders of the Lost Ark, believe it or not, Harrison Ooh. Ford's made another Raiders of the Lost Ark. That, that was being shot in Glasgow City Centre three weeks ago. And because the weather at the time, they booked a two-week slot just, just down from our office. So there were American flags everywhere. And the scene, there's obviously a scene where Indiana Jones is on a horse and gets involved in the ticker tape parade for the astronauts coming back from the first moon landing. So that that's the scene that they're filming in St Vincent Street in Glasgow. Oh wow! Uh, they booked out two weeks, so uh, you know the St Vincent Street was bedecked in all these nineteen uh, sixties shop uh, signs and flags and all the rest of it. But because the weather was so good, um, they managed to get it wrapped up in a week, 
and a week later, um, the Batman uh, movie rolled in. So they're now shooting Batman. So that Indiana Jones and Batman being shot in the middle of Glasgow in the space of two weeks. It is much changed. I know St. Vincent Street very well because my first trip to Glasgow was in 2007. I went to a gig at King Tut's and I remember getting there early and walking all the way down St. Vincent uh, Street. Uh, It was a gig. Uh, it was Sandra Lerke, who is a Norwegian chap who makes Burt Bacharach and Prefab Sprout. You do know him? Oh, I suppose he yeah, is. I know who he is. Yeah, Sandra Lerke, yeah. That is the first person I've ever said Sandra Lerke to. And I've met him, and he's very, very nice. He's now independent, and he's back in Norway. And just to prove to you, I'm not making that up. My favourite song of his is Two Way Monologues. Yes, is the you correct answer. I, you know what? I will leave that in, uh, because it just proves <laughs> of the rapport we've just met. Um, you're up in Kilmarnock, I'm down in Watford, um, where there is a link. Do you know the link between Killy and Watford? Um, I, I don't. I like Dyer, something to do with him. Uh, it no. is the goalkeeper Daniel Backman, who took over as number one okay. last season, uh, was Steve Clark's number one for the second half of the season before he got the Scotland job. Uh-huh. Uh, the other link I have with Watford, Mad Mental Malky Mackay is not that Malky Mackay, is it? No, no. Um, we touch on this later on in terms of real characters and fictional characters and things like that. But no, um, I, I think the I, I have to be really careful with how, how people are interpreting those. The most obvious, difficult one that I've had in the past was with Boy George. The band in the second book get themselves into some horrendous financial difficulties and feel that kidnapping Boy George is the only way out for them. I had that idea in mind, and I thought, the only way I can do this is if I actually contact Boy George and, and get permission for what I'm about to do to him, you know? And at the time, we couldn't, I couldn't get that, even though I had some, some friends who were um, mutual friends of his. So I, I, I kind of wrote my way out of that, where the person that got kidnapped was a Boy George lookalike, when there was quite a lot of them around in the 80s. Um, and, and we... We kind of made, or I made a story out of that, and we'd made a film out of it as well. And then eventually, much much to my delight, Boy George wrote the cover quote for the book uh, for the German version. So I was really chuffed with that, and I, I just wish I'd managed to get in touch with him earlier because I'm sure he would have been okay with the storyline. But it, it kind of demonstrates that if you if you're going to put real people into fictional books, you have to be a wee bit kind of careful, you know. Yeah, this is uh, the rise and fall of the miraculous Vespers, which Stuart yeah. Cosgroves, who has come up in conversation on this show before, uh, a great white knuckle read set in the world of hope, dreams and DIY pop. I was all set to sit down and read There's Only One Danny Garvey. And then I went to your website, which uh, I will get the URL of. UK. I noticed that very recently... Uh, a theatre in Ayrshire have put together a 45-minute version of this book. It's kind of a, a not a duologue, a trilogue, or a, a, a small yeah, cast. No, that, that, um, that, that was actually, that's the film I'm talking about. Yes. We, made a, we made a film of it, and it's quite, a, quite an unusual story how that came about. Um, the, the first book that I, I had written, um, The Last Days of Disco, was acquired by the National Theatre for Scotland. Uh, for a stage play and a brilliant guy called Johnny McKnight wrote a fantastic screenplay for it 
or stage play, sorry. Just as luck would have it, before it went into development, the leadership of National Theatre for Scotland changed. And I, I kind of knew that when that happened, the, um, the ball was on the slates for the, the play because, you know, someone coming in new isn't going to want to be judged on the, the, the acquisitions or the decisions that's the, the predecessor has made. So it went into storage. Johnny started working with some people from uh, Borderline Theatre and Air Gaty. I'd kept in touch with him and said, look, I, you know, if I can help in any way to get this stage, then just let me know. And Air Gaty, before the pandemic started, Air Gaty had expressed an interest in putting it on. So they met with me. There was a couple of people that I knew. And then obviously... They, they shut down completely. I got in touch with them and I said, look, I, I've, I've got an idea for, that I, I had been writing for uh, an extract out of Miraculous Vespers. I'd already, I'd already written a film screenplay, um, but I'd, I had an idea for something that might be a kind of short play about the, the, the current status, you know, everything written in the, in the present tense and three of the characters looking back the way as part of an interview process. Um, and I got in touch with them and we, we kind of floated this idea about whether it would be possible to do something that we could put on online, you know. At that, at that time, I think, Air, Air Gaty Theatre were, like everybody else in the, the theatre industry, were kind of looking at potentially two years of not being able to open their doors and no way of bringing in any revenue. So we kind of kicked this about a wee bit and I, I with the director adjusted that screenplay to something that we could make and film uh, with all the actors in their own house. You know, so it started off as a kind of play, but ended up as a film because we had to piece all the different bits together. And Air Gaty and Borderline used it as a mechanism to raise donations and funds, so they were putting it out free um, but and asking, asking their membership to donate in order to try and keep some of the jobs in the theatre going through the pandemic and it was a brilliant success. It was one of the only one of the first things that had been done like that through through lockdown. I was really, really pleased with it. And Creative Scotland ended up giving them money for it as well, brilliant. which was great. So, yeah. so everybody got paid for it as well. That is brilliant. Uh, one of the things I want to do with the football library is to turn it into an event space. I should explain um, this is uh, like a mind palace. It's an imaginarium. I've, I described it the other day quite pompously. But... It's the words in the book. Um, and you've got Roy Keane at the door. Johnny Nicholson is on the front desk. Um, you've got Danny Gray tending to some of the shelves. Andy Holt is there in the lounge, um, welcoming people in with tea and beer. And every single book that you can imagine is on the shelves. There is a, a wee football literature section. And your book, uh, there's only one, Danny Garvey is in it. But... Because you have written these other four books, I did want to talk about them very briefly. I have got in my hand, because it's in the Watford Library, Welcome to the Heady Heights, uh, which is all about right. music in the 1970s. It's really about celebrity culture yes. uh, and corruption. Which is interesting, because there wasn't much celebrity culture in the 70s. Arthur Scargill was a celebrity. Mary Whitehouse was a celebrity. We, we didn't have... Maybe the kernel of that idea and why I wanted to write it was that, that, that when I was growing up and at that time, people who would have been classed as, let's say, the, the UK's light, top light entertainer, the very thought that that individual was doing something corrupt mm-hmm. or 
illegal or criminal. Nobody would ever have believed that. You know, you know the very. I'm not going to name any names here. Oh, we, but, we know who you uh, mean. Yeah. Well, the, the people who have subsequently come to uh, be understood, you know, to to have been involved in that, I think are ov- are obviously you know using that cover of everybody loves them. They're you know celebrity entertainers, and I just I quite like that idea of. Uh, and clearly, you, you know, you're using a degree of hindsight in order to try and make the story land. Um, but to then throw um, some middle-aged opportunistic people into that mix who are torn between the opportunities that it throws them in doing the right thing, I thought it's, it's quite a good... It's a, it's an, I mean, it's a lot, there's a lot in that book. I'm, I'm really chuffed with it. And some of the people, again, to come back to this idea about, you know, do, do you borrow fictional characters from real people? Most of the most of the middle-aged Glaswegians in that are either representations of, of my dad or his pals, mm-hmm. you know. So my, my dad died on before any of the writing was published or before he probably before he even knew that that was something I was doing. And I've always kind of regretted that because I, I thought the, the writing, particularly that book, I think would have been something that he would have really liked. It's such a, I'm just looking at my notes here and we could really go on for three or four hours, but I do quickly want to plug the fact that you've got this disco trilogy, The Last Days of Disco, yeah. The Rise and Fall of the Miraculous Vespers, which was turned into the film called Miraculous. You can access that uh, through davidfross.co.uk. Yeah. And then The Man Who Loved Islands. Uh, John Niven calls you... David F. Ross, an astonishing tour de force. I've read some of John Niven's stuff, and I saw him at one of the Edinburgh Book Festivals. Uh, right. Now, you have played the book festival. I say played, you've spoken in the book festival. Yeah, 2017, yeah. 2018. I've written down, not this year, too busy with work, question mark. It is going uh, on, Ed Book Fest. As we speak, it's about to open. We put, I, I end up at Forward um, Authors for all of the festivals, really. I've got three or four later on this year but not not unfortunately not the Edinburgh Book Festival one because I think other than the ones I've done overseas with, with the German versions of the books um, Edinburgh Book Festival is by far the best you know it's, it's just a brilliant I think I've done it four times now actually but it's it's just a fantastic or it, or it was a fantastic event and when it was in Charlotte Square. I know it's moving this year. I don't, I don't know if that, how that's going to work out. Well, they, it's um, at the ECA, so they'll put a big marquee up or they'll stick them in different rooms, but they're all, uh, it's, it's all going to be broadcast, so I'm watching from home. Um, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it, it's, it's particular, they, they, look after, they look after the authors yes. and, and the audience, to be honest, but they look after everybody so well. It's, it's just phenomenal. But, uh, really exciting. Scary turnovers. You have to really get there on time or you won't get in, um, which I suffered once. But I remember queuing. (laughs) Nile Rogers, the great Nile Rogers, was signing. And I joined the back of the queue and thought, I could be here two hours just to say hello to Nile Rogers. I ended up just talking to someone for 10 minutes in the queue and then buggering off. But... Uh, yes, when it was in Charlotte Square, the queues would snake around the corner. I know someone who queued for... To, bless her. Uh, she got a Neil Gaiman book signed for me, and she had to queue for a long time because he, he likes talking. Uh, what were the queues yeah. like for you, I should ask? Um, yeah, they were okay. I mean, you, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not Ian Rankin or Neil Gaiman or anything like that, but um, I think the the audiences were pretty good. When, when, we, when I did the... German festivals, the Cologne festival, um, Cologne festival, and a couple in Munich and stuff like that. 
I went over there first of all thinking this is just going to be a disaster, you know. Um, I mean, I, I've nobody's going to know me from Adam, you know, um, and I'm writing about subjects um, that are about provincial towns or, you know, 18-year-old DJs in Ayrshire that are, are suffering through the Thatcher years or whatever. How's that going to translate to, to German, you know? Um, but the audiences were, were unbelievable. Um, Bobby Bluebell was a friend of mine. I was fortunate enough to have a publisher who was really into music, you know, which is maybe one of the things that had attracted him to me in the first place for publishing. But I did say, well, why don't we try and do some of these gigs? Because they're about music, why don't we try and do things that are a wee bit different? I'll maybe see if Bobby can come over, get a guitar, we can play some music on the night, um, you know, make the things more of an event rather than just, you know, like Edinburgh Book Festival where it's effectively um, just an author talking Q&A, some stuff from the audience and stuff like that. Um, and they were right into that, you know, the, the almost all of the things we did ended up being m- much more of an event, you know, where you've maybe got uh, other other people on a, on a support bill, you've got music, you've got a DJ. So all of the, all of the book launches I started doing from then, Therenda, were all in, uh, you know, we did one in King Tots actually, um, you know, where you're actually on stage and you're putting on a bit of a show and I... I I, I like that much more, you know, and I've noticed that, I, you know, they're not stealing it from me, don't get me wrong, but I've noticed that there's much more of a move towards that in literature events nowadays. Even Ian Rankin's, you know, as, as part of a band and is playing live when he's at Edinburgh Book Festival and stuff like that, everybody's trying to give the audience a wee bit a wee bit more. And, and I kind of like to think that I was, you know, not the originator of that, don't get me wrong, but I was, I was there at the beginning when that started to change. Um, and I, and I really like that. I think that's something that I would want to keep going. Um, mm. I'm, I'm not doing the book festival this year, which was a wee bit of a disappointment because I would really have liked to have done something with Danny Garvey, but there are, there are three or four others I've got on later on this year now that they've they've been confirmed to be to be done in, in public, you know. And I will look out for them. Two things arising for that paragraph. Yes, uh, Richard Osman, I think, is launching his book at the Palladium. Osman yeah. at the Palladium. Yeah. But when you sold a million books, you could do whatever you want. You can make Be Here Absolutely. Now. You could do Sergeant Pepper <laughs> the film. You could do anything. Jazz Odyssey. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing coming from that, Edinburgh Book Festival is going on at the Edinburgh College of Art. Uh, this yes. year. I know what I, I remember what I was going to say. Um, I lived on Spottiswood Street in Edinburgh. Ian Rankin famously lived on Arden Street. They are parallel streets next to one another. So whenever Ian Rankin was talking about doing his PhD in the late 80s, living in Marchmont, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And Edinburgh is, obviously, I've been to Glasgow several times. Edinburgh is, I step off the train at Waverley, it feels like home. Even though it's all trams and gentrification and not even Jenners is there anymore. Do you hear that? Jenners has gone? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, I'll score that one more victory for Glasgow. But one thing that really um, upset me in, was it 2013, 2014? There is a documentary that's just come out about Glasgow School of Art, which suffered not one but two fires very close to one another. Yeah, it's a very painful thing for me. My connections with Glasgow School of Art are are pretty strong. I I studied architecture there for all of my time, Um, and I'm now a, a director of, or a, an owner of the company that Charles Rennie McIntosh 
mm-hmm. was once a partner of. So Kepi, our, our company, were the architectural practice that Macintosh worked for when he designed Glasgow School of Art. So, you know, it, it was it was hugely painful um, the first time, um, never mind the second mm-hmm. time. And now, you know, they're, they're, it's just up the hill from where the office is. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's any rescuing of it this time. I know there's still a lot of uh, discussion to be had about the cause and the, and the um, you know, ultimately what might happen next, but it's a pretty perilous shell mm-hmm. being held up by Scaff. props and scaffolding and all the rest of it. Now, it's, it's not, I think the last time it happened, um, the exterior of the building was reasonably intact, and it, it's, it's one of these buildings that built at a time where virtually everything inside was made of wood and made of timber. It could have been rebuilt and recreated from that point of view, but I think now the whole stability of the structure is at, is at risk, you know. Yeah. And, and there's just nobody... I think the, the lockdown, the pandemics take, had taken the pressure off, the need to find out what was going to happen to it, you know. Uh, I don't doubt for a minute that'll, that'll come back and there'll be a bit of... Um, there'll be some challenging uh, issues and considerations for um, for the board up there. Oh god! And then you've got to put it to tender. If in... but is it listed? Is it a listed property? Oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's one of it's not only listed. I think it's UNESCO World Heritage as well. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading that when it when uh, you call it the greatest building in the world. You said the library enchanted you, which is why it's quite apt. I, but... Yeah. I mean, I I, I think. Um, it's it's kind of it's a difficult thing to describe to people. I think you know, but my my attitude and to life probably and the kind of person I am now, I think has probably been changed more by that building than any other individual. I'm aware of other people who have come through the Glasgow School of Art who've said similar things. You know, it's it's whether it's to do with it's opened their eyes to what art is capable of and and to you know what architecture can achieve and, and how it makes you feel but um there's there's definitely something of of that building that's part of my soul you know mm-hmm. and always will be um i would love to ask you about how you helped to modernize the subway which i did use i think that night so you are an architect of repute um i won't even dare to ask how much kepi design is going to quote me to build a football library um but if i not if you can knock ten percent off, I'll make sure that there's a David F. Ross wing well, or something. Yeah, come and come and have a chat. We we um, we did the in, in a similar kind of vein, I suppose. We we created the vision for Hamden um, that recently saw the SFA decide to stay at Hamden rather than go to Murrayfield. Um, that was a pretty challenging gig, I have to be honest. We're also uh, heavily involved with Rangers at the moment. Um, and and their plans to modernise the stadium and Edmondson House and you know um, so yeah we we we're involved with quite a lot of um, footballing related projects. Um, it'd be nice to have more, but you know uh, I think I think the two that we've had in the last wee while have been pretty good ones. The closest I've come to asking anyone what an ideal library, a paradisical library, should be like was when I just took spoke to poet and Barnsley ledge, Ian McMillan. I think he said you need space. You need space to sit and think and quiet um, without too much echo. Do you have any idea what your ideal football library would be like? The 
last thing I'm going to do is disagree with, with someone as great as Ian McMillan. Um, so on top of all of that, rather than introspective spaces, I think a football library should have some element of connection to the outside. Try to think how you would achieve that, but some some mechanism of, of connecting with external space. Like it kind I of think. in a quad, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Or, or potent, you know, potentially maybe high up in a stadium overlooking a ground or something. That would be, That'd yeah. be quite Well, I always wanted it on the ground floor so people could just walk up, but I think it would be used. The Poetry Library was or is on the third or fourth floor of Southbank Centre, and that's the home for poetry in Britain. I think they were trying to cut the budget and there was a whole load of Fandango. But Watford is the home, it was the home of print as well as beer in the 20th century. We had some printing, which is now, uh, it's all been turned into flats, but the clock lives on. The famous clock. So that is like a mile and a half down that way from me. So Watford is the printing town. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why a football library would have to be in Watford. But what I've done for the past year and a bit is I've filled it with books. And in the second half, we're going to talk about the fifth book that you've written, which is the first that is football-based. I just wanted to ask now, why is it taking five books to focus on football? I'm not really sure I know the answer to that. Um, the first book was really, like, like um, I would imagine most writers would say this, but the first book was more autobiographical than any of the others. When I, I was talking about, I mean, first of all, I, like most people, I would figure I'd never anticipated that one book would be published, never mind getting to five and... and in, in the middle of a sixth. So the first book being published, I kind of figured, well, you know, that's that's an achievement in itself. Nothing will come, nothing else will come of it. There we go. Um, but it did pretty well. Um, my publisher, I've got a great relationship with, had said, I'd quite like you to do two more uh, and had made the suggestion that sequels or trilogies or whatever are, are quite a good way for a new author to build up a readership because effectively the characters are established there's a writing style that's developing um, you know you can build up people who are who, who become for want of a better expression fans of the writing and fans of the books and, and therefore will maybe stay with you the longer you go whereas if you write something completely different on your second book as, as a lot of people do um, you know that you're, you're maybe running that risk that, that you know, people think, well, I, I like that first one, but the second one's completely different. And, you know, so that that, that was really um, the motivation behind putting the three books together. Although I, I, I think they're not, they're not strictly speaking, um, a, a trilogy in, in a chronological context. You know, I think the, the Vespers book is, is a kind of standalone book of its own. It just, it shares certain peripheral characters with the first book and its trigger point um, of, from the point of where the story really begins is a fairly uh, central part of the first book but after that they kind of go in their different ways the third one was really picking up from where the first book finished with those characters and then taking them on that journey into middle age but it gave, again it gave me the opportunity to bring back Max Mojo and some of the people from the second book and just blend that whole story together and as I mentioned earlier on the the, the, the fourth book was one that I had wanted to write for a while because it was really a tribute to my dad and some of the stories that he had told me and I, had, and I wanted it to be about Glasgow and so I think I think although writing about football 
was something that I'd always thought about and been interested in, and I've written quite a few pieces for Nutmeg magazine. I don't know if you know Nutmeg. Um, we'll get to that. We'll get to Nutmeg. I, I think I was always swithering about writing about football in, in a way that actually isn't necessarily about football, if you know what I mean. It's just it's 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 the background subject. But I, I was really worried about writing a book about football that would alienate potentially people from the books that might that might like my writing, but I'm not interested in football at all, you know. And it's a wee bit of a danger, I, I guess, when you're writing where football's part of a fictional background. But there are there are many people who've who've done it brilliantly. Yes, um, and we'll get to that in the second half. And we will also, here's a cliffhanger for you, we'll also tell you who inspired the colour of There's Only One Danny Garvey. But I just wanted to read this sentence from the opening page of Welcome to the Heady Heights. Archie loved the necropolis. Oh, gosh. The Molendina burn running below it was where St Mungo had founded his church, the seed of Glasgow. It now represented where East End balm pottery stopped and the city centre began. Balm pottery. That is a word that we never use down here in Watford. Uh, Find more balm pottery after the break. Uh, 